Hello and welcome to Right Care Baptist. Today, Henry and I have special guest, Dr. Jennifer Snow, here with us to talk about COVID-19 and children. Dr. Snow, welcome to the show. Can you tell us a little bit about yourself and your clinical practice? Hi, Jake. Thank you first for the invitation to speak today. My background is I'm a pediatric intensive care doctor. I did my training in New York City, New York Presbyterian Cornell uh, residency and both fellowship practice for 12 years. And I've been at Baptist for the last two years as a medical director of the pediatric ICU. Thanks for coming on. Henry, why don't you kick us off with your thoughts on this important topic? Thanks, Jake. And listen, Jennifer, thanks, thanks for coming on board. Certainly the, the topic which has been of great interest around COVID-19 has been the presentation in, in children and adolescents. I realize many of them are asymptomatic, but it seems that they, uh, when they do present, uh, they can present in, in ways that differ from the adult world. Could you just walk us through what you see, signs, symptoms, and, and do they require isolation and, and ICU care, hospitalization, et cetera? Take, take us, walk us through that a little bit. Yeah. Well, as with any new disease, you know, data is coming in every day. So um, effectively, little is still known, um, you know, about COVID infection in children, but we are collecting data every day and looking at that. As you alluded to, you know, in adults, the timing and symptoms seem to be more consistent in terms of the phases of symptoms. Contrast, unfortunately, most kids who get infected with COVID do have mild disease, um, and most of them don't, don't require hospitalization or medical intervention even. And this is borne out in data from uh, Italy, China, and now the United States. The rate of infection is still quite low in kids. Just as of June 16th, uh, the data shows that in more than 2 million cases, only 4.2% of kids were positive for COVID infection under 18 years of age. So the rate of infection is still quite low compared to the adult population. In terms of symptoms, the most common symptoms are going to be just like the common cold, an upper respiratory infection with fever, cough, runny nose, congestion. They may have sore throat. They may have some difficulty breathing. They could have some GI uh, gastrointestinal symptoms such as vomiting and diarrhea. Rarely will they have any severe symptoms like they are seeing in the adult population. Uh, there have been a handful of kids with respiratory failure, cardiovascular collapse, shock, um, multi-organ system dysfunction, but those numbers are still quite small in the pediatric population. That's great to know. And for the ones that are hospitalized, are there any trends in that group? Do they have certain comorbidities or are they just general healthy kids that are coming in? That data is also lacking. <laughs> the small studies that have looked at this, there's a study out of Lancet uh, out of the UK. It was only five kids who were hospitalized had comorbidities. What is known is that kids with comorbidities or underlying conditions do have a higher hospitalization rate. And what those underlying conditions are, are typically respiratory diseases such as asthma, diabetes, cardiovascular disease, congenital heart disease, immunosuppression if they're on chemotherapy for an oncologic process, cerebral palsy, prematurity. Those are the conditions that are listed, but the data is still very lacking and the numbers are still quite small. But what is known is that those children with underlying disease seem to be at higher risk of having severe enough disease that warrants hospitalization. Jennifer, so given that, that it's hard to capture this information in, in children, understandably, how do they get infected? Is it the same way in which the adult becomes infected or what's the general knowledge there? The general knowledge is that most of the kids who've tested positive contract the disease uh, from a household contact, typically an adult. What's interesting and what is still being looked at is the big question is, do kids transmit the disease? Right. That data right now seems to suggest that they don't. 
as much of adults and it's really unclear why. And so the data that we currently have, most of the kids who've tested positive do contract it from an adult household contact. That's what the data currently shows, but it's still unknown and still early in the process. Yeah, I thought that was really interesting. Yeah, that Lancet paper, I think, just talks about that a little bit. And, you know, in the past, we, I have two young kids. I always blame them for every cough and cold I get. But right now, it seems to be that it's the parents that are transmitting it to their kids instead of vice versa. Well, yes, I know everybody on the on listening to this podcast wants to hear everything about multi-system inflammatory syndrome in children, but but that's a teaser. We're not going to take them there just yet. I, I'm interested in your thoughts. And if it doesn't seem to be a child-to-child transmission what do you think about then uh, the closing of daycare and, the, and then the reopening of schools? And what does it say to you regarding the, the spread of infection, especially in the uh, early childhood population? Any comments or thoughts there? Yeah, that's a tough one. Certainly the school closures, the daycare closures has prompted you know many additional challenges for families uh, with children at home um, and for the pediatric population. Certainly schools and daycares are fundamental, not only for academic instruction, but social emotional skills, uh, safety for children, reliable nutrition for a lot of kids, physical activity. As we're in summer and and schools are now thinking about their reopening processes, uh, how do they get guidance? Who do they look towards? And the American Academy of Pediatrics actually just came out a few days ago with their guidelines, and they are actually advocating for the goal of having students physically present in school. And when you read their policy statement, this is predicated on that evidence, which is still small, but it's there. Um, that children seem to be less likely to be symptomatic, seem to less likely to have severe disease requiring hospitalization, and the small data seems to suggest that they're less likely to transmit. Um, So they did just come out with a policy statement recommending having students present at school. Certainly, you have to balance it with the known risk of getting the disease or transmitting it with the known risk of and harm, potential harm of not having kids, you know, at school, whether it's academic instruction, safety, identifying those children with depression, physical abuse, you know, sadly, there have been anecdotal reports, you know, abuse situations going on in the home, not being identified, you know, at school where they don't have that safety net. You know, no single action is going to eliminate risk during this pandemic, but hopefully the goal is if you have several safety measures in place in kids to reduce the risk of transmission, such as social distancing, masking, strict policies in the school or daycare setting to mitigate and reduce those risks. The thought currently is that kids will benefit from going back to school. I think it depends on the community and the infection rate. You know, it's it's a moving target. It's a very fluid situation that we are in. It may change by the time August and September rolls around. But currently, that's the thought processes of, you know, societies like the American Academy of Pediatrics. I would agree, you know, as a parent, Um, As someone who's treated COVID patients, you know, in small numbers, you have to weigh the risk and benefits. And I think right now there's data to suggest kids aren't severely affected. The risk from not going to school on families economically, not only just academic and the social nature, but, you know, the economic aspect of this uh, is really hard. And and even with virtual learning, it's, it's not adequate, you know, obviously for instruction for kids. 
And that was especially surprising coming from the American Academy of Pediatrics that is a traditionally very conservative organization, it seems, with a lot of their guidelines and recommendations. So uh, as a parent as well, I was, I was glad to see that they'd come out with that stance despite the risks that are out there. And, and again, yes, it's we're still a few weeks away now, you know, really August is here next month and things change so rapidly. It's really hard to do any sort of that long-term planning, but it was, I'm glad that they came out with at least some guidance. One, one last follow-up, Jennifer, if you don't mind. And in that Lancet article, did they speak to childcare centers, daycare centers and such, or is that, is that still an unknown? I can't comment on that. I'm sorry. I kind of focused on the school and I'd have to look back at the article to see if that was mentioned. I apologize. It wasn't an academic publication, but it was a, the interview with one of the authors of the guidelines of the American Academy of Pediatrics. And I think he spoke to some evidence that came out of Europe where child care centers were open and the transmission in that group actually came from the teachers to the children as opposed to the children to other people. And so that was part of their reasoning for issuing the guidance, if I'm recalling correctly. Yeah, and in the data of transmission, I've seen there was potentially one child at a multiple who may have transmitted it to a teacher. Just like you said, the reverse was true, where most of the transmission was from the adult to the children. Okay, Jennifer, let's go to what everybody wants to hear you talk about is the multi-system inflammatory syndrome in children and adolescents. It's interesting. This multi-system uh, inflammatory syndrome in kids um, is, is interesting. It is a condition uh, that causes parts of the body to become in, uh, multi-systems, including heart, lungs, gastrointestinal system, kidneys. The cause is still unknown, but it appears to be linked to COVID-19 infections. Uh, it was first reported in April, um, a case series out of the UK uh, from London, where they had eight previously healthy kids who developed this uh, multi-inflammatory syndrome that appeared, for all intents and purposes, uh, similar to Kawasaki disease which is another inflammatory vasculitis of all the blood vessels, but more specifically the coronaries of the heart. Um, and the symptoms appeared to be similar to Kawasaki disease. Um, they had high fevers, uh, evidence of inflammation, uh, systemic inflammation. Um, but interesting, a lot of these kids had cardiovascular collapse and shock, uh, which you don't, you can see with Kawasaki, but not always. And there was also a, a linkage to either someone who had an exposure to uh, COVID infection, or they were then the cells popped either by antibodies or by PCR testing. So this report came out, this is how we first heard about it. And at the same time, there were cases being reported in both New York City and in Italy. And in May, uh, the CDC issued a national health advisory for pediatric centers to report any cases that met the criteria, uh, which seems to be symptoms of MIS C, which is what we call it. Um, so fever is a hallmark, high spiking fevers, typically for more than 24 hours, but often longer. Gastrointestinal symptoms are very prominent, more than 90% of patients, including diarrhea, abdominal pain. They may have a rash. Uh, they can have cardiovascular collapse, shock. It also seems to, a lot of kids will have clinical symptoms consistent with toxic shock syndrome which is interesting. And the timing of the symptoms is roughly about a month after either a known COVID infection in the patient or exposure to someone who is COVID positive. So it seems to be a post-infectious phenomenon and what they theoretically think is an immune response to the infection. A study actually just published a couple days ago in New England Journal um, actually has looked at the epidemiology of pediatric patients in the United States. So it's one of the first studies I've seen that come out that really looks at the clinical course and the epidemiology. 
And what they found was that the median age was around eight years of age, 62% male, so male predominance. 73% were previously healthy, had no previous medical conditions, um, and 70% were positive for COVID-19, either by antibody or PCR testing. For this condition, unlike an actual COVID infection, the majority of them do require hospitalization because they can get ill. And uh, so 88% of those patients uh, were hospitalized and 80% actually required ICU care. So I think that's what's garnered the attention of uh, pediatric providers across the country. There have been four deaths reported according to that study. And even though it sounds scary and, and critical, it's still really relatively uncommon. Um, the incidence is still not known, but it appears to be a rare complication of COVID infection in children. And in terms of treatment, just like any other thing, it's supportive care, supporting the respiratory status, giving them fluids, electrolytes, supporting their cardiovascular system with medications. Uh, but we are using immune modulator therapy, including IVIG, um, IV immune globulin, and steroids in, in cases. Guidelines are coming out from big centers like Children's Hospital of Philadelphia, uh, Vanderbilt just is coming out with their center, Boston Children's, New York, where I trained a lot of my colleagues are developing the guidelines and, and treatment protocols for this condition. Since it is a vasculitis, does it in any way look like the vasculitis-like uh, illness in, in the adult with COVID-19? Do you see microthrombi in, in kids or the stroke risk or any other vascular occlusion concerns? No, we haven't. You know, I don't know in adults if those are, you know, we're certainly seeing strokes in adults. So I have not seen a lot of data about strokes in kids. Um, it's a massive inflammatory condition. Um, in We are putting them at least minimum prophylactic anticoagulation when they are to the hospital, uh, just because we know that's a risk factor in adults. And a lot of times we are extrapolating <laughs> data from the adult world when we treat kids in terms of treatment. But what they seem to respond to, and the good news is the majority of them do well. Um, the majority respond to immune modulator therapy, IVIG, uh, steroids. If the symptoms overlap with Kawasaki disease or atypical Kawasaki, they will get placed on aspirin therapy, which is a standard treatment for Kawasaki as well. So the good news is that the majority seem to respond to therapy and quite rapidly. And, you know, I'm, I'm in these groups with um, you colleagues from across the country. And the unnerving part of this condition is for all intensive purposes. Externally, the kids actually seem stable, and then they can have rapid collapse. And by collapse, I mean cardiovascular. Uh, they go into shock quite rapidly. And unless you're a center that can handle cardiovascular collapse, potential ECMO, and the timing of that and the predictability of that is not apparent immediately. Um, it can just happen pretty fast. Um, so there have been reports of that. Uh, which seems to be interesting. And, and the, the patients having underlying conditions is also interesting. It does seem to disproportionately affect the African-American uh, community, whereas Kawasaki typically seen in more of the Asian population. We see it in all, all ethnicities, but in the reports out of the UK also support that the majority of kids were African-American. Um, and why that is, we don't know. Um, we don't know the, the links to that. So that's a good question. And, you know, the last time I think I encountered Kawasaki syndrome was on the step two exams. But, you know, that was one of the questions I had was why is this considered a separate entity versus Kawasaki's? Is it because of those demographic trends or is it something else? You know, we have atypical Kawasaki. <laughs> you know, Kawasaki has very delineated criteria 
Um, and if you don't meet all the criteria, then um, you know, you're called atypical Kawasaki. The main differences from my understanding is age, you know, the Kawasaki population tends to be younger in the toddler age. And this age group tends to be more eight, even adolescents are getting it. Um, and adolescents to see Kawasaki is quite rare. So, so those are probably the distinguishing characteristics and the timing associated and the positivity with COVID makes this a distinct condition, it seems. Um, although the cause of Kawasaki is not known, it seems to maybe follow a viral infection, which is similar to this. So there are similarities, but there are also differences. They both get the strawberry tongue though, is that correct? So that should show up on a board. Yes, exam. you can get oral mucosal changes, the strawberry tongue. Yeah. And this is this is multi-system. You know, it's GI, cardiovascular, skin, blood, hematologic. Uh, the labs, you're seeing, you know, massive, you know, inflammation. Your inflammatory markers are quite elevated. Um, and, and, you know, typically we don't check. And the cardiovascular component of this uh, in terms of the shock, you know, one of the criteria is you're looking for beta natriuretic peptide is elevated, your procalcitonin is elevated, your CRP, uh, you just get this massive inflammatory response, um, presumably COVID infection. All right. So we've talked about treatment on the MISC patients, but we didn't really talk about the difference in treatment for the regular patients that are admitted with severe COVID. Is there any difference then on the adult side or are they being treated with the same agents like remdesivir and other modalities similar to that and supportive care? Most of it's supportive. Like I said, most kids don't get severe disease. So most of them can do, if they are hospitalized or treated supportively uh, with respiratory support, oxygen, ventilatory support if they need it, fluids, electrolytes, cardiovascular medications uh, if they have cardiac involvement. Um, remdesivir is being used as the preferred agent, um, but the recommendations currently in pediatrics are on a case-by-case -case basis and preferably in a clinical study if that study is available. Um, so that would be in consultation with infectious disease, uh, the intensive care unit, um, and it is reserved for those patients with severe disease, which is still very rare in kids. So I don't know of the data. I'm sure kids have received it. I just don't have that data. It's, it's such low numbers and probably in clinical trials. The steroid data that just came out on adults, I know there's some uh, studies ongoing right now with treating kids with COVID with steroids, and that data is not out yet. Gotcha. You know, it's definitely gonna be interesting as far as the returns to school and vaccinations and, and the requirements for vaccination related to COVID-19, as well as all the other childhood vaccination. And there's been a lot of reports out there that children potentially are already missing their vaccinations based on this on the schedule that's out there currently. Do you have any comments on that or have you seen anything like that? Should we be prepared for a measles epidemic because kids are missing these vaccinations? I think we always should be on the lookout for that. You know, we've already had little pockets of outbreaks, you know, even just with the anti-vaccination movement, you know, in the last several years. Um, so always on the lookout, it's always on our radar. Uh, obviously we always advocate for timely vaccination of kids to follow the vaccination schedule. What is unknown is in anyone right now is, you know, if you get a COVID infection, are you going to be immune? How long are you going to have antibodies? Are they going to be protective? We just don't have that data yet. Um, I know the vaccine development is being uh, expedited right now and um, we'll see what happens when a vaccine comes out. But absolutely, we're always on the concern and there have been anecdotal reports across the pediatric community of because of the shutdowns and the closures, um, parents being scared to take their kids in and or offices being closed. So yeah, I think it's a risk we always have to be on the lookout for. Yeah, I'm sure those virtual checkups with a two-year-old are, are really fun. 
Yeah. <laughs> so Henry, do you have any closing comments for us today? No, Jake, I really appreciate this chance to talk with you, uh, Dr. Snow, and learn a lot more about COVID infections in, in, uh, in our children and, and young adolescents. And I appreciate your time and your willingness to come on and, and teach us all a few uh, bits about this population. Thank you. Yeah, I appreciate the invitation. Thank you. Yeah, any last words for the audience? Any take home points that you want to mention? I would say wear your mask, <laughs> social distance, and I, I know we'll get through this. You know, we're a resilient country. Um, it's unfortunate the surges that we're seeing right now, and hopefully we can get a handle on it. And everyone just has to do their part in, in controlling this, this infection. Well said, and, and thank you for being with, with us today. Thank you, everybody, for listening, for tuning in to Right Care Baptist. Join us again next week. Have a good day. And remember to find the link to CME at the show notes at the bottom of the podcast. Thank you.